0: We're all about charity here at Sex and Space, and today's shout-out is for Wellington Rape Crisis. Their mission is to educate others to prevent rape and sexual abuse and provide specialist support services to survivors and those who support them in a way that is feminist, informed, sustainable, and holistic. Their vision is a world free of rape and sexual abuse and the damage that it causes. Check them out at wellingtonrapecrisis.org.nz.
1: Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have
2: gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space. Wherever quality podcasts
0: are found. Hello and welcome to Sex and Space. Here, still exploring sex across all of its infinite dimensions. This is episode twelve and the last of season one. Stand by for season two, dropping soon with a plethora of great guests and awesome new co-hosts, and me, of course. A few updates to rattle off quickly. You can find, and clearly you already have, this podcast on a whole host of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, etc. But just to keep things interesting, we've put some of our content, not full episodes, but tasty bite-sized clips on a new platform called Audia. They're a startup out of the US and have surfaced some really interesting audio content creators. So head on over there and check them out at audia.io, that's A-U-D-E-A dot I-O. Also remember to keep us informed with what you think of our content too. Hit us up with any feedback at hello at sexandspace.com or via the quick and easy survey that you'll find in our link tree and our Instagram bio. You should know the handle by now, sexandspace.com, that's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. Okay, this episode, we are featuring a natter I had with the wonderful Olivia Hall. Olivia has a master's in gender at the London School of Economics, where she wrote a thesis on women's experiences with painful sex and seeking medical support. She also has an undergraduate degree in gender and politics from the University of Otago and completed her honours in sociology at Victoria University in Wellington. Her undergraduate thesis Looks at fat women's experiences navigating sex and sexuality in Aotearoa. She's also a spoken word poet and toured New Zealand performing a feminist show called How We Survive. Let's get into it. And
1: now, the interview.
0: That's pretty awesome for Early <laughs> on a Sunday morning, so welcome to Second Space. Thank you very much for Thank you. Uh, for trusting us. <laughs> no worries. With your yeah, with your Sunday morning. Um, that's quite a pile. Uh, how 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 and where to start? Um, super interested in in the show actually. Cool. Um, Read some reviews. Didn't see it. I have an 18-month-old. I don't get out much. That's fair. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, it was just recently in New Zealand, right? Yeah, very recently. Over September and October we toured. Awesome. And um, it's a feminist poetry show. So you're dealing with themes. Not just – obviously not just a – Sex, but like gender and um, yeah, all all the all yeah, the whole we cover
2: we cover a large spectrum of things That's from yeah, from like friendship and oh, um, yeah, our experiences as women essentially yeah, um, so we speak about some really hard topics like violence and um and harassment and things like that, but we also talk about body positivity. Um, I do talk about some of the stuff I've researched in terms of sex. Yeah, um, yeah. Brilliant. So it covers a lot of things.
0: Yeah. And it was well-received.
2: Yeah. So, we, yeah. We had the time of our lives. Um, <laughs> so I hope audiences did too. They New seemed Zealand. to like it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah.
0: I, I, some of them were in tears. There, was,
2: there, there were tears. Were tears. I mean, yeah. Carrie and I frequently cry on stage. So yeah. it's not hugely surprising that, that there are sometimes tears in the audience as well. Oh. Yeah. That's great. But yeah. it's really nice. It's really, it feels very supportive and we always sort of like talk to and hug the audience afterwards. And things, oh, that's so.
0: awesome. It's really nice. That's so kiwi as well. Yeah, oh, man, that's brilliant. Um, there were some things I'd read um, in the reviews um, about, uh, particularly about your um, some of, some of your parts in it mm. and talking about um, your own experiences and and that kind of stuff. So is yeah. that is that why you sort of got into poetry?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think I always. Liked writing, and I always wrote the most about things that were happening to me and things Mm. that were really personal to me. Um, And when I discovered spoken word, it felt like this really great combination of things that I love to do because I love performing and I love communicating with people and I love writing. Um, And, yeah, I mean, I always say that standing up in front of a room full of people and performing a poem about something really personal to me can be easier than sitting down one-on-one with, Someone I'm really close to, and talking to them. Right. So the show's an interesting mix because obviously all of my family and friends came to the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a combination of those things. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a it's a really empowering way to talk about things that are really personal. Do you um, find it cathartic as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. very very th- cathartic. Particularly performing with Carrie, having a second person, and we're really supportive of each other, um, makes it feel really cathartic and and supported. Um, but also, hopefully, we, we you know we try to talk about things that are really personal in a way that other people still relate to, um, and therefore also sort of feel supported yeah. by hearing someone talk about those things that they may yeah, not yeah. have. Well, that's otherwise. one of
0: the, that's one of the things that I heard that um, some of your personal experiences really do resonate with other people, and yeah. they're coming to you afterwards and, and sort of saying, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah. definitely,
2: and that's. I think I, I talked specifically. By the end of the show, I was talking a lot about the one poem that I do that is about my experiences with painful sex mm-hmm. um, because there were times over the course of the tour where I would take it out of the show because it felt uh, just a little bit too much um, and I worried about like overwhelming people with, right, with right. my feelings. Um, but by the end of the show, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like it's, this is always, I'm always performing this poem. I'm not going to take yeah. it out even when I feel nervous about it. And that's because every time I did it, at least one woman would come up to me after the show and be like, that's the experience I have. It's And like be very, very um, sort of like touched that I'd talked about it or just feel not alone. And we would always have a moment of yeah. sort of relating to each other. And yeah, so in some ways it became what felt to me like the most important solo poem that I was doing in the show just because it felt like it was touching sort of a taboo that doesn't, Get spoken about that well, much? Well,
0: clearly in reaching, reaching people, um, and exposing a, a problem, yeah. that, that the people are having. So um, unpacking exactly what that is. Mm. That's vaginismus, is that right? Yeah. Is that so? And that is, so, is that the common problem, or is the common problem the the so sort of misdiagnosis or? Um, oh, there are so many. Yeah. There are so
2: many common problems. Um, so. So this is what I did my research about for my postgrad. I interviewed women in, who are based in London about their experiences with painful sex. And I didn't specify that you had to have a particular condition because I know that painful sex is associated with lots of things. So mm-hmm. it's associated with vaginismus. It's also very commonly associated with endometriosis, yep. um, with vulvodynia. It can be a symptom of cervical cancer. Like There's so many things that that can be a symptom of. And also... Lots of people don't get diagnosed with a particular thing. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted women who felt like they had ongoing experiences with that pain to talk about trying to get medical treatment. And yes, definitely one of the problems is it takes a really long time to get diagnosed with a lot of those things. People wait years to get diagnoses with endometriosis. Um, and some of these things are really hard to diagnose, but everything that, that I can see from the study that I've done is that We don't really train doctors to 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 diagnose this, to Mm. treat it as a as a medical issue, even. Um, And so, I think for me, one of the key problems is just that we've normalized the idea of pain in sex for women.
0: Oh, I see. So because we
2: yeah, well, like we talk about virginity loss as being painful, yeah, and everything from sex education to like pop culture presents women's experience of virginity loss as really painful and therefore women are taught from a young age to associate penetrative sex anyway with uh with pain and so i think there's there's we're already putting up these barriers in terms of women feeling like they can speak out about that feeling like you can go to a doctor who in many cases is likely to be like oh some pain is normal it'll go away over time yeah and finding it in yourself to keep going back to a doctor and really advocating for yourself in terms of being like, mm, I don't think this is the normal level of pain. I don't think I should have to overcome this and, in some way. Yeah. And so yeah.
0: I don't know, I've only ever had a, a, a bit of experience around um, endometriosis because mm. my wife um, has had that, but or has it. Um, mm. But in terms of the pain levels, from penetrative sex um, that we're sort of talking about here, it's it's pretty debilitating. Yeah,
2: it? I mean, again, it will vary from yeah. person to person and condition to condition. For me and for lots of women that I n- have spoken to and know who have vaginismus, often penetration is not possible. Not even possible. Um, lots of women with vaginismus describe it as sort of like hitting a wall and like that's it, there's no yeah. there's no going past that wall. Um, endo, sometimes they can... You know, penetrative sex is possible, but very uncomfortable. Sometimes afterwards, there can be bleeding, there can be pain afterwards. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely very debilitating. Definitely yeah, not yeah, yeah. feeding into an environment where I think penetration is likely to be something people want to do. No,
0: absolutely. Um, but in terms of what would maybe be a normal a normal pro sexual progression, like it's pretty obvious that something's not right. Yeah. 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 And that's just being... Yeah,
2: I'd love us to not approach sex as something that should ever really be painful no. for, for women. Yeah. I just don't think we're educating people to give them the tools to immediately start having sex that is not painful. Um, but yes, I think it's pretty obvious after a certain period of time that something is wrong. Yeah. Um, but I think that can be really hard to come to terms with on a number of levels. Firstly, oh. because we just have this real desire to paint penetration as the only form of legitimate sex. So it's very hard to see yourself as a sexual person or think about how to have a sexual relationship that doesn't involve penetration because there's an expectation that that is what sex is and that everything else is just sort of stuff around it. Um, And I think that's so hard. And then I think there's this really hard feeling that lots of women in my study and in other studies talk about in terms of how it makes you feel as a woman that you're just sort of not able to do this thing that should be natural and easy and like fundamental to a, to, to your relationship. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like there's there's a lot to overcome, and that's before you even go to a doctor. And are like, I'd, I'd also like a yeah, I'd yeah. also like a diagnosis and some treatment, please. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then the likelihood of you having a straightforward process with the m- medical profession seems. To not be very high,
0: doesn't it? So, the um, moving away from, from the the show, mm. uh, to the thesis that was so, your findings around that are, are, are pretty consistent, are they? Is yeah. that, is that kind of what you,
2: yeah? I mean, up? women have lots of different roundabout journeys with painful sex, um, and it was really important to me to try and see what those were. So, for example. Multiple of my interviewees for my thesis are not straight. I wanted Mm. to talk about the fact that you can have pain during sex in non-straight penetrative sex. Um, But yeah, all of them, I mean, I think more than half of them never received a diagnosis of any kind. Multiple have self-diagnosed. A large number of them would still say that they have ongoing pain that hasn't really been resolved. Um, And it depends like I interviewed one woman who has vulvodynia, which was clearly really traumatic for a few years and really affected her relationship. But also she got treatment and would say that she can now have basically pain-free sex. Yeah. So there are people who totally have great experiences, even if it's a long and painful process. Um, but I also had really sad cases um, of women who've spent many, many years trying to get treatment um, and don't think that it's got any better. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the findings are sort of, they're broad. They, a lot of them are about needing to take sort of a more holistic approach to sexual health and well-being in terms of the fact that, particularly with vaginismus, I think, it's often treated as a psychological problem. Um, and there are totally aspects for lots of women who have vaginismus of there being like a psychological barrier.
1: Okay.
2: Um, But there are also very real physical symptoms. Like there are spasms that mean pain happens. Um, And I think the medical system, particularly in the UK where it's underfunded and there's not a lot of communication between the different facets of of health, split that up a lot. So you'll either be sent down a path to get psychological, psychosexual therapy or whatever, or you'll be sent down a road of them poking and prodding you a lot to see whether they can find a, a physical reason. And there's often no community, there's just, there's just no, let's treat this as a holistic thing that might involve facets of, yeah. of various yeah. different things. Let's talk to each other.
0: Well, it sounds like those two things are fundamentally yeah. connected. absolutely. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and also, like, I don't think it's that surprising that someone who can't have sex or for whom sex is very, very painful has some form of psychological distress. like. Yeah. Even if you're treating it physically, all of those people could probably do with some form of of support for their mental health.
0: Yeah. Um, or at least the self sort of fulfilling prophecy in your mm. head that this is going to hurt and then you get anxiety and all the rest of it yes. as well. So, yeah, it yeah, seems exactly. pretty obvious. <laughs> um,
2: exactly. I think the best, yeah, and, and I got this really good explanation from a doctor once who was like if someone was coming at your eye with a finger, your automatic reaction would be to squeeze your eyes tight shut. Absolutely. Um, and that becomes a trained response to protect yourself from harm. Yeah. And when your body has decided that penetration is painful for you, it's gonna do the same thing. It's gonna clench up and become tight. And it's yeah. not, that's a, it's not gonna, it's going to believe that's a,
1: yeah.
0: an
2: ongoing thing.
0: That's a complete unwiring of your brain. Yeah, to, exactly. To that, yeah. And that's
2: not just gonna be a physical thing that you train your muscles. You're also going to have to train your mind to, yeah. to relax during that, um, which is easier said than done. So.
0: Clearly. So actually yeah. that is – in terms of the, the sort of treatments mm. for these, I mean, obviously there's a broad range. Um, yeah. Is, does, is, have you found that some of the best stuff is a sort of mixture?
2: Yeah, of I think so. And again, I mean, vaginismus is what I know most about because it's what I have and it's what – so many women that I've spoken to have. And vaginismus is generally treated at the point in time that a doctor, you get a doctor who actually knows what it is Mm. um, and is confident that's what you have, is largely treated by giving you a set of dilators, plastic or silicone dilators, and telling you to go home and essentially dilate yourself until it doesn't hurt anymore. Um, Okay. And... And and research suggests that it works, but it okay. only works if you stick with it. And yeah. depending on how severe or debilitating your vaginismus is, that's essentially asking someone to go home and put themselves through torturous pain oh, on a I day-to-day basis. like
0: some Victorian torture.
2: Yeah, it does. Yeah, and, and everyone's like, this is the solution and it's great and you can do it. And 70% of people get better. And I'm like, okay, but you have to...
0: Endure the pain. You have
2: to endure the pain. Yeah. Every time you're doing that, you're actually reconfirming for your brain that it hurts. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't think it's that surprising that lots of people, including me, are like, nope. Nope. <laughs> you can't even give me a time frame for how long I'll have to do this. I'm not just going to for an unlimited period of time. Yeah. Be That's... like, I have to put aside half an hour every day for my for daily my extreme, torture. For <laughs> extreme
0: yeah. torture time. Yeah. yeah. That's madness. Um, I mean, and then I think if that, if that works, yeah and, you know and statistically, then it's great okay. that that but, works for people, but but isn't that amazing that if it does work, then seventy percent of 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 people who it has been successful for have have, have gone, gone through, through that. that yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. and I think it's exactly why there are lots of other things that should go along with it, because lots of people will see like a pelvic physio or some kind of physio that can help them also think about relaxing their muscles, mm. um, they'll also see you know some sort of psychologist or something so that they can talk about you know the mental impact of doing that on a day-to-day basis um so there are lots of things that probably need to go alongside it and I think what is particularly unhelpful is when you get a doctor who gives you dilators and is like the main thing is that you're just not relaxing like if you could just relax and so the big thing I got was like lie down each day like put on some calming music and like lie down and do your dilation for half an hour I was like what world do you live in? Like, Goodness. I can't just light candles and, and lie down and this pain's not going to be there anymore. And mine was clearly like I had I have very extreme vaginismus. It was extremely painful. But yeah, to go to a doctor and say penetration's not possible and have them be like, well, the solution is a lot of penetration. Yeah. Was, With some meditation. It <laughs> was yeah. pretty scarring. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things I found in my research, which was one of the most interesting to me, was how much these women really just wanted someone to have a conversation with them about the idea that they didn't have to have penetrative sex. How nice would it be for for there to be a conversation at any stage about how you could have a fulfilling sexual relationship that didn't require you to have penetrative sex yeah. and that said, actually, if this is extraordinarily painful for you, what if you didn't do it? Yeah,
0: let's try some other stuff.
2: What if you stopped yeah. trying to do that because you feel like you have to?
0: Yeah. uh and no one was ever getting that from no. anywhere and that would be so beneficial from a psychological point of view as well that yeah. sort of release of expectation yes. would just be would probably go a long way to to helping yes yeah
2: i think it would like but also it would just like revolutionize the way we talk about sex in such a positive way to yeah. not be so focused on this idea of this very heteronormative idea of penetration sex is, is Yeah, sex. especially
0: when it's like the loss of virginity exactly you know, everyone's kind of chasing that around aren't they when they're younger yeah, yeah. No, I just
2: think it, yeah, so many of our ideas about what sex is and what you need to be doing are based around this really harmful notion that you're not having sex if mm. you're not having penetrative sex
0: it's interesting actually um, just recently on the podcast we've talked to people about the, that virginity myth thing yeah um, and I sort of had it unpacked for me because I hadn't really kind of explored it and um, I, I think that's I think that's really interesting. I've never. It seems so obvious mm. when you think to yourself, okay, so all of my all of my lesbian friends who yeah um, are we just saying you know, they've never had, had sex? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, of course they're all virgins. It's like mm, no, that's not true. Yeah. And um, also, I like the idea of, of it being something which you can um, kind of own yourself from a mm. point of view of like, okay, well, I'm I'm sexually. Active now, yeah. Maybe I've chosen not to have penetrative sex, or yes. I don't want to, or whatever it is. But you know, yeah, I'm a sexual being now. So,
2: absolutely, I think that was one of the hardest things for me because I'm in a long term relationship that I've been in for the, you know almost the entire time that I've been sexually active, and the entire time that I've gone through this process of getting um, diagnosed and then trying multiple treatments for vaginismus, mm. and it's. Yeah, it's exhausting and it's hard to feel like you have to defend the idea that your relationship is legitimate and that you have a sexual relationship that just doesn't include penetration.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I as a as a teenage boy, um I was my first proper girlfriend. Um we we didn't have sex. Um and it was a real thing amongst my peer group. Yeah. Um and of course, you know, teenage boys are ridiculous. Um but it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a thing, you know, yeah. oh,
2: so, you know, what have you done then? Like, yeah.
0: Um, all oh, absolutely.
2: The like grading that we give to different yeah, things that yeah. you can do sexually exactly. and you have um, to advance through the list.
0: Yeah. It's really, it's a real shame actually, because, um, I think mm. it, it did, we don't want to talk about me or, or my <laughs> first girlfriend, but it did, it did add a little, a bit of pressure yes. as well. Um, you know, I think she maybe um, felt like she sort of had to do things she didn't yeah. necessarily want to do, all that kind of stuff. So it was, um, yeah. Mm. And it's not it's not the fault of any, any of my peer group necessarily. It's, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's cultural, a cultural thing. Yeah. yeah, it's a cultural expectation yeah. that's placed on.
2: And it happens as soon as you're in a relationship, particularly yeah. if you're in, I think, a heterosexual relationship because mm. that's what all of our cultural norms are around. Um, as soon as you have a girlfriend, it's like, well, you must be having sex because yeah. otherwise you're just friends. Like what is your relationship if it's not, if it's not sexual? Yet. Cause we're very bad at sort of identifying that there are other things that are different about relationships that exist yeah. outside of sex. Um, but yeah, I think there are so many things that flow from that because I mean also in my, you know, in my research I've talked a lot and thought a lot about um, how often penetration is not satisfying for women, how often women don't orgasm and, and don't find mm. penetration alone to be sexually fulfilling. And again, this focus on penetration just says, oh, but this is, this is the act. This is, this is what you do. Yeah. This is sex.
0: Yeah. It's um, not the rolling around for an hour no. before. Or having and we just let different... I, yeah.
2: I feel like we let people off the hook by just being <laughs> like, that's it. You just have to do that. And if you've done that, I mean, it's not your fault if your girlfriend doesn't get off because yeah. you're doing what you were supposed to do. Yeah. Whereas I feel like if we just stopped and treated all of it as sex, there'd be m- way more encouragement to like explore each other's bodies and figure out what is pleasurable for each other. Even if that means you're not always having penetrative sex.
0: Mm. I completely agree. Yeah. And now my mind is back, <laughs> back to when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> How great it
2: would have been to know these things. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. Um, yeah.
2: Um,
1: yeah. It are you, nice. and
0: it, the, that's the other thing as well, isn't it? Is, um, Is when you're when you're younger,
1: hmm.
0: you really don't know about avenues yeah. of like healthcare, what to do, who to talk to, hmm. that that sort of stuff. I mean, this is all sort of part and parcel of what what we our broader conversation about sort of sex education, hmm. formal or otherwise, um, and one of the you know the main things is is kind of the lack of information that you're that you're given for yeah. your sort of formative years um, mm. and if you're experiencing experiencing these things and you don't even know who your doctor is yeah <laughs> or oh yeah yeah
2: no you're getting all of i mean if you're a, yeah if you're a young woman you're probably getting half your information from Cosmo magazines i definitely yeah. got more information from magazines than i did from my formal sex education <laughs> yeah um but also, that's really problematic because those are exactly where I got the stories of, oh, sex is really painful for me. And everyone's like, that's normal. Yeah. Um,
0: Some agony on page or something. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And so there's this, yeah, this, I just can't believe when I think back how much of my teenage years the discussion and discourse around sex mentioned pain and how rarely it mentioned pleasure. Mm. <laughs> like it was never, never talked about as something that should be a pleasurable experience. It was something you do. It was something that could lead to, you know, you having a baby. So you had to think about contraception. Yeah. And that was it. Might be painful at first. It'd get better. End of.
0: End of. Yeah. It, yeah, it's interesting. I want, Sort of what's coming to mind is other conversations we've had around things like um, uh, portrayals of pleasure in porn as well. Mm. Um, I might... I'm in my late 30s now and so my sort of formative years weren't as influenced as porn as apparently yes. people are now. It's like younger younger people who yeah. sort of find it much younger than I did basically. Yeah. Um and I see yeah, there's interesting discussions around around portrayal of pleasure and pain um for women mm. in porn. So, you know, penis size, yeah, all these kinds of things. So, also particularly unhelpful I'd imagine. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Just not not enough discourses that are that are breaking the, the norm or mm. questioning yeah. the this generic idea of pain as something that we should just deal with and yeah. it'll go away. Um, yeah, and it's just it's so hard because some of the women I spoke to ultimately found they were much get it, better getting support from other women who had that experience from mm. building a community. There are great networks and communities in big cities like London where you can meet other women who have vaginismus, which like, blew my mind when yeah. I first found out about it. I was like, imagine when in and a doctor finally said the word vaginismus, if they'd been like, and here's a support group you can go to and meet other people who have this experience because you are not this crazy single person who has this problem. Um, But lots of women have found that 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 is better for them. There are great companies that make sex toys who now also make vaginal dilators that are not supposed to be so medical and supposed to allow you to actually approach doing that with with some idea of it leading towards pleasure and it being an enjoyable sexual experience. (laughs) Wild.
0: Um, I can't imagine anything that you get given from your doctor... I don't, to be yeah. associated with, with pleasure. Maybe yeah, like, oh, exactly.
2: <laughs> um These like hard medical yeah, yeah tools. Um, yeah, and so actually talking to other women for them was really helpful because also because doctors have such a lack of information about this, you're not going to a doctor and having all of the options laid in front of you and having them go. Or you could try psychosexual therapy. You could try a physio. You could try dilating. You could try all of these things. That, like, you're not getting those options. So women I interviewed would be like, I'd never even heard that anyone went to a physio until two months ago when I spoke to someone at the Vaginismus Network Um, and they've been on this journey for like six years. And it's just crazy that you're just, yeah, you just don't get that information. You're much better talking to other women who've actually gone through it and been like, this worked for me, this didn't work for me, this might work for you. Um, So lots of women found much more comfort and support in that. But there was still this really nagging thing that I think we all held on to in terms of wanting the pain to be legitimized. I think mm. that's why you keep going to doctors, even though it's exhausting to keep trying to advocate for yourself. Because you really want this person who has medical knowledge to say, I know what's wrong with you. Yeah. It's a real thing. Your pain is real and legitimate and we care about it and we're going to do something yeah. to here's fix our, it. our rubber stamp. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. So, yeah, you want to know that it's not all in your head. And, yeah, there were so many interesting points around that that came up when I interviewed these women. Women who uh, would have other symptoms alongside painful sex, so, like, they were bleeding, often really clung to those things because they didn't feel like they could prove to a doctor that they were in pain during sex. Mm. But if they had a physical symptom, like, I'm bleeding, they felt like it would be harder for a doctor to ignore that. So they'd go and being like, I'm bleeding, you have to help me, like that is a medical issue. Um, Whereas, yeah, there was this weird feeling that you couldn't prove just saying that you had pain during sex and you couldn't prove that it was something bad enough or important enough. Um, And I also think, sorry, all of my thoughts from my thesis that I haven't thought about for months are coming back to me. Um, It's also so interesting to think about the emphasis that we place on, on the role that sex has in a really gendered way in the lives of men versus the lives of women or other groups. Because I've read lots of stories of women who, when they take their partners along to appointments and when their partners start talking about how not being able to have sex affects them, mm-hmm. that it's approached in a really different way. And I think this comes... And that was like horrifying to me when I worked it out. I was like, I can't believe that I'm supposed to go into a doctor with my boyfriend so that he can make them take my pain seriously. Um, but I think it comes from this really strange perception we have that men can't live without sex, that sex is this fundamental natural part of being a man and you have this urge and need that you mm-hmm. can't control. And we use that all the time to excuse behavior and, and say that, you know, that's just an urge they can't control. Whereas women are sort of supposed to be more passive when it comes to sex. They submit to sex, they, you know, they consent, but we don't we don't talk about it being this pleasurable thing. We very rarely talk about them taking on more active or dominant roles within mm. sexual relationships. And so because of that, I think we've fed this horrible idea into our culture that sex is something men deserve and just something that women have or put up with or do.
1: Yeah.
2: And therefore it's really easy to be like, oh, sex is painful. But like, if you can do it, that's all that matters. And that was kind of the approach, even with dilation. It was like, I mean, we're not working towards pleasure here. We're working towards you being like, well, you're healed because you can technically be penetrated. Yeah. Technically something can go inside you. So you are fine.
1: Yeah.
2: And yeah, unsurprisingly, all these women are like, that's not really what I would consider this issue being resolved. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like I'm going through all of this pain and the response is, well, as long as it can go inside you, like now you can swap a dilator for a penis and therefore you're having penetrative sex. And therefore,
0: yeah, my job here is done.
2: Problem solved. solved.
0: It's
2: like, I still don't want to do that because it's still very unpleasant. And even if it's not explicitly really painful, it's probably uncomfortable and we're not, Thinking about pleasure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's frustrating, the, yeah. the gendered nature of it. It is, actually. And
0: imagine, imagine having to take your, your partner along. New <laughs> partner, a old partner. Yeah. Yeah, and say, oh, I, found, I really met this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, yeah. it's so nice
2: to meet you. We've been <laughs> yeah. on two dates. Could you please come to a doctor with me? Because yeah. <laughs> they don't think there's anything wrong, and there really is. I know, it's just wild. But also... Just it was also crazy to me that like they're hard to diagnose, but the idea that doctors have never been taught about vaginismus or vulvodynia or that until fifteen years ago it was even much, much harder than mm. it is now to get an endometriosis diagnosis. Um but we have ads and and window campaigns at boots for erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Everyone knows how to, you know, millions of dollars have been funneled into ensuring that men can have can man, yeah. sex.
0: Yeah, it sure has. It's a big industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a huge industry. Yeah.
2: I'm like, why don't you want to make a huge industry out of genuinely healthy women who would also really love to have
0: pleasurable yeah. sex? Yeah, the endometriosis one's an interesting one, only because um, my wife's suffering. But it's, um, yeah, I've heard sort of anecdotally and and through various things that, that, that can take a really long time to be, yeah. to be diagnosed.
2: One of the studies that I
0: saw was the UK one that says
2: it takes between often six months and nine years of having the problem yeah. to get an official diagnosis.
0: And it's it's really
2: and it's prolific, hard. Yeah, as it's well. really prolific. yeah. It's really prolific. It's and we have started sort of running campaigns about endometriosis and things, and there's been this massive upsurge in awarein- uh, in sort of awareness about it in the last few years. And I was so fascinated when I was living in the States, there was like a TV commercial that was essentially about endometriosis. And it was you could tell that essentially the point of it was to educate the public because doctors don't know about it. So it was like, if you have this, this, and this, yeah. there is a good chance you have endometriosis so and you need to doctor. go to your doctor and say, I think I have endometriosis. Yeah. <laughs> because the most likely thing that will get you a diagnosis is you self-diagnosing so, yeah. and then telling your doctor to diagnose yeah. with it. know I mean, how to spell yeah. it.
0: Go exactly. yeah.
2: <laughs> and obviously, I mean, there are difficulties you know because I think to technically diagnose it, they won't te- officially diagnose it until they've actually seen that there is
0: yeah, endometrial which involves, cells, which involves, yeah.
2: you know, like a laparoscopic surgery. So it's not quite as simple as just being like, tick box, you're yeah. diagnosed. Um, but the fact that it takes so long for it even to come up in mm. discussions with doctors, because again, wanting that reassurance is partially... Like wanting a name that I can go home and research and feel like I have some control over finding out my own information. Um, that's what's so nice, I think, about yeah. getting... Even if it is not that hopeful and even if a doctor's just saying, here are some unpleasant dilators, I still felt like I had more power once. Because I had a I'm, thing that I could look into. Yeah,
0: otherwise Dr. Google is exactly. probably going to drive you mad. Yeah. <laughs> and you're always going to end up at some, something horrendous.
2: Yeah, so, so yeah. you're always... Yeah, I think you are... And and also there's yeah, there's just that nice moment of being like, Well, it's terrible, but that is definitely what I have and other people definitely have it yeah. and and now I can talk to people and I can figure out what works for me because it's clearly not a, a one method works no. for everyone.
0: And so in terms of the the thesis and, and sort of what you found, what are the best um, what have been the best outcomes for, for women? What I think were well, they not? Oh. No, <laughs> there, like, there, there have been some. There have been some. Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, yeah, so I think it's a couple of things based on. So the, the last question that I asked in every interview that I did for my thesis was if you could go back again and start the whole journey again, what would you want from the healthcare professionals that you went to see? What would change how you felt about it? And what was so crazy to me is that the things these women were asking for were not medical miracles. These women weren't saying, I want every doctor to be able to immediately tell me on my first appointment, what is wrong with me yeah. and give me seven options that will make it go away. No one, no one was even saying they have to be able to make me all better. They were saying, I want doctors who will take it seriously, who will acknowledge that that pain is happening and mm-hmm. that it must be really hard and that they're going to try and do something about it. And then they want sort of that ongoing support, whether that's giving you the ability to talk to other women with that experience, giving you the ability to treat it as both a sort of a physical medical problem, but also something that you might want psychological support for. Um, yeah, just allowing it to be sort of an ongoing journey where the woman themselves doesn't have to make every single step. And that's particularly hard in the UK because with an underfunded NHS... It's very, not even is it very, I mean, it's very hard and often very expensive to get any sort of specialist treatment, but also to get anywhere you have to go through your GP. They give you referrals and clinics are so busy. You often don't see the same GP more than once Mm. and you see them in 10 to 15 minute slots. And I just can only imagine having gone through all of my medical experiences in New Zealand with this and the States. I can only imagine how frustrating it must be to feel like you're starting at square one every time you make an appointment. Because every time you get a new doctor, that entire 15 minutes is going to be spent giving the backstory yeah. to why you're at yet another appointment about yeah. this and trying to explain that, no, it's not the normal amount of pain and here's what I've already tried. And yeah, I, you oh, need a more sounds. ongoing, you need a more ongoing support system than that. Yeah. And lots of women are finding that in, in non-medical things and in, in having support networks and being able to talk to each other. And yeah, and then the other thing is just we have to change the cultural conversation because it's alarming how often women who have these conditions are like, well thank god I found a good guy who's willing to to put up with the fact that I can't have sex. And I'm like, but you're clearly an amazing person. Like yeah. are they actually putting up with anything that crazy? Do we need to treat it as though you're so dysfunctional and such an incomplete human being that like, you're lucky that you found a partner that is is willing to be there for you. Um, and that, yeah, that definitely is the cultural conversation. And yeah, lots of, lots of people who were in queer relationships didn't have that and really mm-hmm. felt because the process of queering sex is already going far beyond talking about penetrative sex. They're far more likely to be having open conversations and considering sex more broadly. Mm-hmm. So people who were in queer relationships were often the ones who still found ways to have really positive ongoing sexual relationships because it's very common, particularly with sort of vaginismus or something that doesn't even really allow penetration for people to completely shut down and then stop trying to do anything Mm. sexual because everything reminds you of and is associated with this pain. So often doctors will be like, I mean, are you having any sort of, sex because it's very common for, for them not to be but i found that people who were in queer relationships often didn't approach it that way and were far more likely to be open to, to trying other things and, yeah. and talking through and didn't feel ashamed to be talking through um different ways to have those relationships and that just comes down to to what we teach about sex and how we talk about sex
0: yeah absolutely
1: And now... This.
0: Barbarella's... Geflotltheta, the planet Barbarella's orbits, is about to drift out of parthenogenetic space, meaning it will soon be business as unusual for the galaxy's premier sexual therapy centre. In the meantime, they pass the time as best they can.
1: OK, who would you slay? And you can't
2: count Ripartig. Everybody hates them anyway. What a wormhole. Oh, whose
1: idea was a passive aggressive head of a jar? <laughs> so, slay.
2: Uh, Angset from Copravilev. Caught it following me into the Latrina with
1: a scooper. Said it was ridiculous. <laughs> belly of
2: Frictus for me.
1: Why Belly of Frictus?
2: Uh, she just reverse rubs me.
1: Okay. With whom would you spawn? Mm,
0: Ambigua. Who wouldn't want to with a shapeshifter? Ah,
1: Bebra Fortunas. Bodies don't get any more heavenly than that.
0: Mm, (laughs)
2: Responsive quality. Okay, who would you subjugate?
0: Oh, Elysia the Acquiescent. The clue's in the title.
2: (laughs) That cute little Andromedan from accounts payable for mine... Every time it brings the slips
1: round, my throbula becomes so engorged I can't see for an hour.
2: Salutations, fellow labourers of love. As you know, we are about to leave Pathospace, and it will soon be business as unusual. <laughs> to that end, I've just jumped off a hypersite psych with the high-legged of Fluckwimper9. Turns out, this Cartesian unit closes the third megalinium since the Fluckers first stood on three legs and looked longingly at the stars. To celebrate this evolutionary milestone, they want to hire out Barbarellas for their top executroids for an entire galactic week. Oh, come on. You know the Barbarellas, Maxim. All species, all genders, all welcome. So... No new bookings from next Newton Day, and the Menager bots will be around to put down the plastic.
0: Will the fluckers pay up front? Do they require specialist equipment? If you're a helium breather, does oxygen make your voice really deep? Tune in next temporal unit to find out.
1: And now to more weapons grade content.
0: So interesting. <laughs> uh, I could talk about this all day, but <laughs> should we move on to sure. the other thesis? Oh um, yeah. How far back are we going now? Are you
2: going back twenty sixteen?
0: We're going back to twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um, it's okay. It sounded it sounded really interesting to me. Um, yeah. One question i One question I had. Yes. Uh, we throw like I don't want to trip up. On any, um, on any words, but the the word, the word fat. Yes. Fat woman. <laughs> I was like, I know where it, this is going. Yeah. Like, is is that an is that an accurate and uh, sort of okay description? Is that is it something that people would define themselves as, yeah. or would, I mean, would they like rather be described? um i don't know in any other ways or is it a personal thing it's a personal
2: thing so lots of people would i'm sure not like to be described that way yeah but only because of the vitriol that we have associated with that word um and so for me it's been really important to reclaim that word to some extent to be like this is a descriptive word Mm -hmm. that is useful for me describing my body so
0: I oh, would use it to describe my body too. Like <laughs> Because it's literally true, but yeah, yeah, so so yeah,
2: like it's a, it's a useful it's a useful descriptor for me. And within sort of body positivity, there are lots of different things people use, right? Like okay. because it's political as well. People yeah. will call themselves small fats or super fats or oh, different things depending okay. on sizes. There's a whole there's a but whole, there's a whole world yeah. of, of body positivity. Um, but yeah, for this it was really important to me to to not try and play around with other terms and actually early on in the thesis i explain why i'm using fat as opposed to using because because the two common things also that you would use otherwise are like overweight
1: or obese you're like
2: using these very medicalized terms or like i hate overweight because it's like over what weight what is the (laughs) normal weight um so i didn't want to use these sort of yeah these like horrifically medicalized terms and beyond that you're getting into sort of like things that people might use to refer their body, but that are not that useful as descriptors, like curvy or chubby or, yeah, yeah. you know, you can, there's any number of things you can use like that. Yeah. Um, but fat is actually, if you take away the extreme societal reaction to it, just just a simple word. Yeah. And we would let people say they were slim or skinny. And I was yeah. like, just want, that's fine. And then, like, that means that I got a particular sample. I got people who were far more likely to have gone on a process of being comfortable thinking about their bodies in that way. Yeah. Um, but I was okay with that. I just wanted people who and I didn't it wasn't like I was like you must be this particular size or you must be over this size Yeah, or you yeah, yeah. I I knew that people who had gone through a journey of comfortably identifying themselves as fat would have done that because they had experiences with fat phobia and things like that. So oh, okay.
1: Yeah.
2: that you know people don't just call themselves fat on a day-to-day basis for fun. They that's a journey to feel comfortable doing that.
1: Yeah.
2: Um and and all of the women I got self you know, self referred themselves to, to speak to me, and we're all perfectly comfortable using, using that word.
0: And so it was uh, fat women's experiences navigating sex and sexuality?
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just wanted to talk to fat women about sex because truly nobody talks about it yeah. ever at all. Um, and obviously, like, there are practical differences in terms of the ways that you may have sex, depending mm-hmm. on the size and shape of your body. Um, but I also wanted to talk about, particularly in this sort of modern age of dating apps and far more casual sex and things like that, what it was like to try and navigate that as a fat person, and particularly as a fat woman. Um, so you know, multiple of the women I spoke to used dating apps and talked about having sort of learning at what stage and they needed to acknowledge their body weight or their body shape because they didn't want to show up and meet a person and have them then be like, oh, no, I'm I'm repulsed by your body. Oh, I see. Get away yeah. from, you know, when you're yeah, not yeah, meeting yeah. someone in a bar, you're meeting someone over an app. Yeah. And it's very easy for photos not to, to I be clear. Say,
0: there's all the trappings of the photos yeah, not being quite. Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
2: And so actually lots of the fat women I spoke to and that I know um, are really upfront about it and will, will specifically try to use photo, photo, photos, photos mm-hmm. that make it clear that they're fat um or will acknowledge it openly on their profiles because there are also people all over these apps that are like no fatties and things like that so um it seems like Yeah. yeah like hard territory to to navigate um and then i was also just intrigued by lots of these sort of particular ideas about fat sex that i knew about or had heard about um just because yeah obviously those practical things in terms of ways that you might have sex that are different to other people, but also is this really interesting idea um, from an academic called Gailey about fat women as being hyper invisible. So they're both they're both just invisible because in a sexual space, we often don't talk about fat women as sexual. We like to desexualize them because their bodies are not what we would normally associate with being sexy. Um but then they're also hyper-visible visible because their bodies obviously physically take up more space, and so they're often noticed in rooms and things like that. Um, and these sort of two things occur at the same time where they're really visible to people, but we're also ignoring them in this realm of, of sex and sexuality.
0: Yeah, um, or triggering yeah. Two, two feelings yes. at the same time, right? Yeah. Yes,
2: exactly. Um, and because we don't paint them as sexual beings there are lots of people who are perfectly comfortable having sex with fat women who are attracted to fat women, but who are deeply, deeply uncomfortable or ashamed of the fact that they feel that way. So it's very, very common for fat women, including the fat woman that I interviewed for that thesis to be having sex with someone who doesn't want it publicly known that they're having sex with you, oh goodness, really? that, that wants it to be a secret that doesn't want to. And that can be, like very, cl- they may be really upfront about that. They may be open that they want it to be secret, or it's more just, oh, I, I want to sleep with you a lot and see you a lot, but we're not gonna like go out in public together, and I'm not gonna let you meet my friends. Um, so this sort of being being a secret because someone is really ashamed of being attracted to your body. Right. Um.
0: So is that almost? Is that so almost the sort of taboo? But. F- uh, yes, and yeah. yeah,
2: and I mean, it, they're also yeah. Then there's the added layer that the fact that people are ashamed about it means it's been turned into this fetish, and porn sites have BBW categories right. and and all these things because yeah, exactly, it's been turned into this fetish, and that also plays into that sort of hyper invisibility thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so there are all these like very complicated, and again, I think part of the reason both of these topics are so interesting to me, both I mean, are obviously very personal to me, but also. Because they're both so built around sort of cultural and social yeah. ideas.
0: Yeah, completely. That's that's yeah. That's their immediate that's the root cause, right?
2: <coughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um because people aren't just like walking around being like, obviously I should be ashamed of being attracted to this fat woman. Society is Society saying is you tight, should be isn't... ashamed of that. Yeah. Because those are not bodies that we culturally mark as as sexual or mm-hmm. attractive. Um and so it was really just about finding out and sort of essentially getting some data because it just didn't exist about sort of the broad range of experiences that, that these women had had in terms of navigating sex in yeah. a fat body.
0: That's so interesting because, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is, the information is, I mean, it's news to me. It's not out there. It's yeah. Not. I just really love talking to women about these experiences. It's really
2: amazing. Um, how open people are and willing to share those experiences. But, yeah, it's 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 life-affirming to hear other people having those experiences. Mm. I always want to get all of the women I talk to in a room together and be like, you're not alone. These yeah. people all feel the same way. All of your data is being confirmed by other women.
0: So across, um, like, LGBTQ and stuff like that, was mm. it a similar sort of story, would you say? or In similar... terms of the
2: fat bodies? Yeah. Um. Again, I think experiences are diverse across all Mm -hmm. groups. Um, But yes, at least one of the women I spoke to, if not no more than one of the women I spoke to, um, would have identified as queer. And definitely, specifically, they found a difference in terms of the relationships they had with men versus the relationships they had with women. Mm -hmm. Um, In that the particular societal narratives around bodies have a different impact on women. The, The requirement to be thin has... Uh, uh, is more of a thing for women than it is for men I think um particularly in terms of we talked about this sort of like the scope in which you're allowed to be bigger like men can be big in this particular way um without it being like an issue that they're they're big whereas women are supposed to be petite it's like a particular thing we've decided about their gender that they should be like small and light and you should be able to pick them up and put them on your knee and throw them about, presumably. (laughs) Um, And, but because that's so drilled into women from such a young age, like, you know, there are all these horrible stories about like girls at the age of six not being happy with their bodies Mm. because we just drill in these particular ideas so early on. I think they often found a sense of camaraderie or understanding in their relationships with other women Mm. compared to other men, where even if that woman was thin, she was far more likely to understand that pressure yeah. and not add to it by being like, let's keep this a secret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's not tell anyone about let's this. Not, yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, that was fascinating. And then the other thing was just, unsurprisingly, people have much better sex when they're not ashamed of their bodies. Mm-hmm. And that's true for, for not fat women. Um, yeah. just and it's just true really, right you need to be comfortable
0: yeah it's so true and it's so um, it's so sexy as well yeah. uh, for any, any body type to be sort of sexually confident mm. exactly. it, it immediately uh, it immediately makes you think oh hang on like you know what what is going on here like what was what was all the fuss about yeah. There's this beautiful sexual being. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah.
2: And so, yeah, I, it was obviously not surprising to me to, to you know, in my research and, and the other research that exists around this, which is not a lot, but there is some, that, that, yeah, I mean, obviously you're not having as enjoyable a sexual experience if you're keeping the lights off and you don't want to get into certain positions because of the way it makes your stomach look mm. and, you know, and these really, yeah, just these problematic ideas that we – just perpetuate about bodies like, oh, she's bigger than him. So if she goes on top, like he's going to die. Like she's <laughs> going to squash him. Like that's not true. This is not how bodies work. Like you can find things that work. um, But, you know, fat women often, if they're not, if they're not fat women who are confident with their bodies often don't want to do that because you're like, oh, well then I'm putting my stomach right in his face. Yeah. And, you know, there are all these things that if you're constantly like hiding, your <laughs> body that's just not it's not going to be a relaxing or enjoyable experience no. for anyone
0: and you know what's interesting is sort of where you said that, that no one's talking about this or you know even you're having these conversations for the first time with people um i think people's the people's minds fill in the blanks a little bit like if you were to I don't know th- these assumptions that you're mm. sort of talking about, like, oh my god, you know, she's going to kill him if she yeah. gets on top. Like that—that's a—it's a sort of societal myth, almost, mm. isn't it? In a way, someone—someone's yeah. thought to themselves, oh, I wonder yeah. uh, about you know a fat girl uh, having sex with that skinny guy. Yeah. How would that work? Yeah, and and then fill in all the blanks. Oh, I and think it, that's
2: definitely what happens. Yeah. I think I became more aware of that. My partner's very thin. I think that's partly why I became aware of it. I was like, people clearly think that we (laughs) can't have sex. And I was like, this is... But also, people made assumptions about um, what my partner liked Mm. and that he must have this type um, and be into fat girls. And I was like, this is just... Maybe he's just into me. He's just into you. Yeah, this real idea... Yeah, this real desire to sort of project onto why people are having these relationships and that they're not sexual or, mm. you know, that, is that they're fetishizing yeah. or...
0: Is that because it's sort of, like you said, that, that culturally um, there's the norm, yes. isn't there? And so anything outside of that, people have to kind of try and, yeah. and justify somehow. Or, Definitely. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And I think it's interesting how that doesn't work in reverse. Because the norm is men should be bigger than the women they are dating. Mm. If the man is fat and the woman is thin, there's still a, like, that still to some extent conforms to that norm. Yeah. Um, whereas the other way around really seems to throw people in terms of being like, oh, you've really mixed up our gender norms. And yeah, so no one's ever going... People don't settle well
0: with that. That small woman over there has, has obviously got a fetish for...
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, that does happen, but it definitely feels like that doesn't happen as much. Again, well, it doesn't that, because yeah. I think
0: it, it, to trust even our own uh, our own immediate uh, intuition on the subject is probably quite a good read um, of the cultural kind mm. of norm. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I, I think you bang on with that one.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. And I, again, I think it all comes back to this idea just that we have very, very strict, narrow ideals of what women mm-hmm. should look like. Yeah. And our, and our ideas for men actually are a bit broader, I think. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it's the shock that a woman is breaking. It's sort of so flagrantly breaking what we think is like the key thing that all women should work all of their lives to be thin.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. And that's why, yeah, we just can't we can't really cope with that. Definitely can't cope with the idea of like a fat woman being like, yeah, I'm fat and it's fine. Everyone's like, what do you mean? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that can't possibly be right. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Do you f- do you still personally sort of uh, ever find anything that you do you, have, do you ever ever have awakenings of like oh I've actually this is this is not my opinion this is sort of society's opinion or anything or oh you,
2: all the time yeah. my gender degree has basically just made me like like a crazy person who's just like I'm very critical of my own thoughts yeah so I'm I think because of what I've said, st- I'm more likely now to have those thoughts and more quickly go. Is oh, that actually what I think? <laughs> <laughs> or is that what I've been... T- so I'm more likely to do that questioning. Yeah. But those, it's so hard to get rid of that initial bit that just jumps to the, oh, I shouldn't do this. Yeah. All the time. Shouldn't wear this. Shouldn't talk like this. Being too loud. Not conforming to this gender norm. Mm. All of the time. Because I can study it as much as I want, but <laughs> it doesn't change Those societal, no, those expectations, which means I'm still having to to decide whether to conform or break Mm. each of those norms each and every time that I do anything.
0: Especially when you notice them, yeah, it's like, can I be bothered to fight this one? Exactly. Yeah, must no,
2: exactly. And sometimes you're just like, no. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes you just don't want to have the fight. Sometimes lots of people I know have gender degrees. Sometimes you're just gonna say you have a degree in sociology because you don't want to get into the to the conversation about what it means to. To have a gen, you know, you don't want to defend your your study or your feminism, or you yeah. just you can't always be be up just for fighting, having those
1: yeah. complete fatigue
0: those fights. <laughs> no, no, yeah,
2: um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, I think that's yeah, I think that's exactly right. You can't, it's, I don't know how you break out of that initial stage of yeah, I don't know, assuming you should do something or be something. And yeah, I, yeah, I talk, I have a poem about sort of coming to terms with accepting the word fat and, and that being empowering for me and learning, to, you know, going on this very long journey of loving my body. And I always have to say beforehand, you know, I wrote this poem when I was in a really good place, but you don't go on a journey from thinking one thing about yourself to thinking the new thing about yourself. And that's it. It's just like one linear progression from hating my body to loving my body. Yeah. And then I love my body every day for the rest of all time because that wouldn't be possible because there are days where I'll feel really bad and then I'll also get hit with seven ads about how it's the new year and there should be a new me and I should <laughs> obviously be on a new year diet yeah, yeah. and all of those things Yeah. and they'll obviously make you go oh okay maybe I'm wrong maybe I should be dieting mm. um, so it's it's such an up and down an up and down journey and even if you know that one thing is right for you fight. you have to fight to, to yeah, hold on to that yeah. oh completely yeah that's yeah. so
0: true I mean it can be anything from a particularly bright changing room light. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. You're like, oh, my. Yeah. Well, I'm well, like,
2: realistically, yeah. I know that my body doesn't change that much from day to day. And yet there are days that I'm like, I look banging. And there are days that I put on the exact same outfit. And I'm like, I'm staying inside. Like, yeah. I look terrible. <laughs> and I like, I like, know that's not rational. Yeah. So I'm like, my body is the same as it was yesterday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you see a photo of yourself that's taken at an angle that you didn't have control over. and Oh, know. You just, you spiral.
0: Yeah. Um, That's interesting, actually. Uh, one of the things I read about the scooting back to um, the How We Survive thing. Oh, yeah. Is um, it was in a review and it was one of the the messages that, or the acknowledgements that there's no such thing as this um, perfect, perfect feminist, yeah. perfect woman, perfect yeah. anything. Um and so I suppose that that's sort of similar to how, sort of how we're talking. You allow yourself these, yeah. these moments to just be like, you know, oh, I'm having a exactly, you
2: know, I'm having a, a blah day. 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 Yeah, yeah. I, exactly.
0: Decide,
2: yes, 100 percent allowing yourself to be a human.
1: Yeah, and
2: I think yeah, when we put these labels on ourselves, even labels that I think could be good, like mm. being a feminist, even that comes with these like very specific ideas of what it means to be a feminist. Yeah. And like, you have to you fight those all the time. Like the idea that you can't
0: watch Love Island. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I
2: mean I definitely do watch Love Island. <laughs> and I'm definitely wearing makeup right now. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you know, these these things that you have to question all the time. Yeah. And so the final poem that Carrie and I okay. do together in the show is called The Perfect Feminist. And it is essentially us trying to discuss that. And at the end, we sort of list all of these things that we tell women to be and the idea is sort of to expose that those are contradictory, that women can't be all of the things that you're telling them Mm. to be because we want them to be curvy and to be sexy, but we also want them to be thin and we want them to be virgins, but we don't want them to be prudes. And, you know, we want them to be mothers, but we want you know, so we just, we try to, yeah, to show how ridiculous it is to suggest that any woman would be able to conform to all of the things that you've suggested women should be able to. yeah, Um, Yeah, because... No one is no one is going to be able to do that. And also, who has who has the time and energy to spend every <laughs> second of every day being like, "Am I meeting yeah. this requirement?"
0: Well, also, um, the thing that was the thing that was mentioned in the review is that it's a it's a weapon. Yeah. Um, to to claim perfection and point out other people's imperfections. Mm.
1: Um, Absolutely. Just
0: just shreds everybody. Puts yeah. Everybody through the shredder. Yeah. Um,
2: and that's the thing. Yeah. It's much nicer to like use the, it's much easier to use that as a weapon and try and stop us from, you know, getting on with our lives and doing doing more productive things. It's yeah. easier for them to be like, You need to buy all of these things to make yourself better and focus on improving all these things about yourself. Yeah. When actually I'd be much better off if I could accept those things about myself and move on to <laughs> to the okay. other things that I'd like to do with my day.
0: Cool. <laughs> all right. Thank you heaps for your time. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, we can wrap this up. It's awesome. Been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks heaps. Really hope you enjoyed that interview and also enjoying this podcast. If you fancied leaving us a five-star rating or a lovely little review on Good Old Apple Podcasts, that would be really great. Massive, massive thanks to Olivia Hall and to all our guests for season one. Thanks to Outset Studios in London Bridge, the team at String Theory, to Andrew, Tanya, Brandon, David and Richard for their amazing voices and to Hugh for making it all the way to the end. Hang on in there for season two. It's going to be epic. Catch you later. Bye.
1: If you found some of this material a little challenging, keep coming back and we'll make it. Really challenging.